inaugural episode of the Batman Family Reunion. I'm Paul Ken, one of your hosts, and with me is my co-host and bat cousin, Sean Myers. How's it going, Sean? It is going fantastic. I'm ready for some fried chicken and to talk about Batman Family number one. If our voices sound familiar, it's because we have both been guests on several podcasts in the past. But today, we're super excited to be the host of our own show and grateful to the Fire & Water Podcast Network for giving us a forum to talk about one of our favorite comic series. We'd also be remiss if we didn't acknowledge Chris and Ryan for a terrific Nightcast show. That show is going on hiatus, so we're picking up the podcast feed. For those of you who are Nightcast fans, we sure hope you stick around. For our new listeners, welcome. But we're trying to make this not just a podcast. We want to make it a reunion. So we want to invite all our Batkin folk to bring your covered dish and your memories of the Batman family comic to the Wayne Manor Gardens and our gingham-covered picnic table. Sean, do you want to tell the folks at home a little bit more about the show? This show covers Batman Family, which was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978, and then rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints, before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man-Bat, and even Ragman and the Demon. Both of your hosts collected and read these comics as they came out and are excited to share their love of this era at the Batman Family Reunion. So Sean, why are we doing a show about a 45-year-old comic series? For me, I love Batman Family. It's easily my favorite comic book of all time. I'm sure that's tied up with childhood nostalgia, but I am more than okay for that. One of the issues was the very first comic that I ever bought, and I'll talk more about that when we get to that issue. I since have gone back and purchased all of those issues and have a funny story about that, which I'll get to when the time comes. I also just love that it's an anthology. I love anthology books. I wasn't Richie Rich when I was a kid, so any kind of book that had multiple stories or multiple characters like Justice League, I always loved that because it felt like I was getting more for my money. And every issue of Batman Family has at least three or four stories. So it all ties in together. When I was a little kid, I was a huge fan of the Batman TV show, 1966. I love it. I still love it. Love have the Blu-ray set and I watch break that out every now and then. So it's all tied up together in a beautiful bow in Batman Family. I was about 10 when the first issue came out in 1975, and I was fortunate enough to pick this first issue up. I'd been reading comics for a while and had started that migration away from some of the more kid-oriented ones to the little less kid-oriented superhero ones. But I was a perfect age. I was just getting to the point where I could tell a new story apart from the older stories. So I also loved that format, the new story, the reprints. Batman was my favorite character growing up too. And and the idea that the spotlight was on his family and other people in that group was really a cool idea for me. As it progressed, the overall story arc of the dynamite duo, Batgirl and Robin, was great. I have to admit, I did start liking it even a bit more when it converted to all new stories as a dollar comic, because then you really get in your bank for your buck, as, as you put it. And then I went to Detective, and I didn't know the reasons why at that point, but I was like, well, I was buying them both. I like Detective Comics. I like Batman. I like, And now I just get to buy one. I used to get all the same stuff. So I was fine with it. But we'll definitely get into uh, that story also in later episodes. And then so, you know, I knew you, Sean, from, from being on other shows and a fan of the Firewater Network. And when I discovered from your various postings on Facebook and other places that this was your very favorite series of all time, we thought, hey, let's give it a go. And here we are. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to get started and talk about the first issue. The way the format is going to go for our show is we're going to review all the stories in each issue. We want to talk about house ads, letters, and text pages, and and some other surprises along the way. We really want to give it that reunion feel. So issue number one was cover dated September, October 1975 and released according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics on June 5th, 1975. It was 64 pages for a measly 50 cents. And there were four stories. There was one new story and three reprints. And the cover artist is Mike Grell. We'll talk about the cover in a second. Originally, the lead story was supposed to run in first issue special number six. But I think, uh, I don't have definitive research on this, but I think that the success of the Superman family comic, which you know they had merged Jimmy Olsen and 
and Lois Lane into one comic uh, for a little less than a year. I think that success of that family and the desire for more giant-sized comic books on DC's behalf led them to start a Batman family. And so that's why we got this story here instead of a first issue special. And I'm sure glad they did. So Sean, you want to describe the cover for our listeners and tell us what you think? Absolutely. So at the very top, you have the house trade of uh, Batman family with the old DC Circle logo in the corner, big giant letters saying giant, 50 cents, the huge Batman family logo, beautiful logo. Beside that, we are introducing the new dynamite duo. And the main image is Batman pointing majestically as the host saying presenting the origin of the Batgirl Robin team. And then in a little box, which I will talk about, we have Robin leaping up at Benedict Arnold. It's almost like Batgirl's riding her bat cycle and she's launching Robin up to get Benedict Arnold. And then down at the bottom, we have Meet the Batman family with little floating heads of Alfred, Commissioner Gordon, and Man Bat. So this is an awesome cover, right? I mean, I'm a big fan of Mike Grell. I don't know about you, Sean, but this is very dynamic and the red cover really pops, no? I agree. The only complaint, and this will be a complaint about nearly every giant comic, is I'm not a fan of the boxes. I just wish they would have just had, instead of the box, just have it floating behind the or have the Batman family logo float on top with Batman floating on top. Like, I just don't like the box presentation of these covers. Yeah, and it was a trend in the 70s too, right? I mean, Marvel did it. Marvel had a whole number of years where they did those box covers. Maybe that was late 60s. I don't know, but it was it was a trend back then. And, and this cover is pretty unique too, right? I mean, that Batman figure is actually a modified version of mm-hmm. the Superman figure from the cover of Shazam number one. It's drawn by uh, Nick Cardi with a Murphy Anderson face. At least the Superman was. Not sure about the face on this one. This could all be Nick Cardi. And so it's a, it feels like it was put together quickly with a lot of photostat. But the Grell part of the cover in the box, it's only you know half the cover is really awesome. And it's like you said, I think this was maybe not rushed, but I think it was put together quickly because it was supposed to be a first issue special. And then he said, oh, hey, let's do Batman Family. So I think they had different parts that they needed to put together to assemble for the cover. We will post the image of the cover as well as some additional pages from each of the stories in our family portrait gallery on the network's website. Paul, what is that website? Oh, that's fireandwaterpodcast.com. Let's dive into that first story, Sean. Okay. Our first story is called The Invader from Hell, starring Background Robin. It's 18 pages written by Elliot S. Magan, beautifully penciled by Mike Grell. And this was later reprinted in Batman in the 70s trade paperback, Batgirl, The Greatest Stories Ever Told trade paperback, Detective Comics Classics, number one, Robin, The Boy Wonder, a celebration of 75 years hardcover, and Batgirl, The Bronze Age Omnibus, volume one hardcover. It was also reprinted in Robin, The Bronze Age Omnibus, but that's not mentioned on Mike's Amazing World for some reason. So it must be good if it's reprinted on all those places, right, Sean? Oh, Paul, this is not good. This is great. I love this story. The issue starts out with a truly striking splash page of Robin leaping from Batgirl's speeding motorcycle to confront a really bad Civil War reenactor with some incredible special effects. But the story itself starts off in Washington, D.C. during our country's bicentennial as Congresswoman AOC, I mean BJG, tells the story of the past week's events where... While she was recording a Bicentennial Minute for the CBS network, two terms, which mean nothing at all to the 20-somethings listening to this podcast, the both of you, Dick Grayson was helping her out as her aide. As she tells the story of the rise and fall of Benedict Arnold, Benny himself leaps out and tries to destroy Babs, but only wrecks havoc on a TV camera. Luckily, both Batgirl and Robin show up to stop this madman but neither Batgirl's non-magic lasso or Robin's beautifully muscled thick thighs can stop Mr. Arnold from vanishing from the studio. The next day, B.A., not B.A. from the A-team, but Benedict Arnold, announces that he has gathered up some army men to storm the Capitol. Anyways, B&R are winning until B.A. shows up and offers to give them a ride to downtown D.C., 
and hopefully DuPont Circle because there are great shops and stores there. But unfortunately, the ride he's providing them involves them being tied to some logs and being dragged down the streets, which actually wouldn't be so horrible, except that DC has a bunch of traffic circles and no one knows how to navigate those. So R&B, Robin and Batgirl, not R&B music, are glad when he strings up the poles, but not so glad when B.A. starts monologuing. So R&B just really don't want to listen to that. So they sacrifice themselves to end it all. Not, not their lives, the incessant talking from B.A. Oh, so I forgot to tell you, when Benny showed up to give B&R a ride to D.C., there was some 1970s mustachioed Stan Lee looking man with him. He wants to shut down the B.A. comeback tour of D.C., but even though there was less turnout for that than for that failed Supremes reunion tour from a few years back, Stan-ish gives him just a little more time. And he starts fencing like Tyrone Powell in the Mark of Zorro. Oh, wait, wait. Um, so that Zorro reference is being used in the 12,487,563rd flashback of Bruce's origin. So let's say he's fencing like George Hamilton in Zorro the Gateway. Batgirl and Robin are all like, Guard, turn, parry, dodge, spin, ha, thrust. While Stan Lee is tut, tut, tutting himself over why this old man with magical powers can't even defeat two heroes who have never even had their own solo books. Finally, and by that I mean the fourth page of the sword fight, BA decides to shoot um, maybe hellish electromagnetic energy, something from his sword. But then the dynamite duo decide to reverse the charges, but different than when I reversed the charges on a payphone when I called home and needed to be picked up from the swimming pool. Well, this works. Maybe because they can't go into a church, which is where R&B sword play their way into, or maybe because they can't defeat the youthful spirit of America, copyright PepsiCo, or maybe because this is page 16 of an 18-page story And we still need to get to the absolute very best part of this already incredibly thrilling yarn, but work it does. And Stan Lee turns into the sexiest devil man I have ever seen. And I have been to countless Halloween parties at gay bars and hightails it back to hell with B.A. And actually, maybe we don't know for sure that they're going back to hell. They may just be going to tour any of the Smithsonian museums, which are all fantastic and well worth seeing. Now, the very best part of the story, because Dick grew up as a product of toxic masculinity in the 70s, Robin tries to lay a stereotypical male chauvinist pig line on Batgirl about how she shouldn't be heroining, but she shuts him up by planting a kiss on him and sends him swinging on his merry way. The end. Oh, wait. So there is one more page where Babs is talking to Congress and she's talking about something and I don't know because there is an incredible drawing of Robin and Batgirl at the bottom of this page looking so mature and fetching that we're going to spend the rest of the episode talking about that. Go, Paul. (laughs) Wow, I don't know how I can follow that synopsis, Sean, but shoot, overall, this is a great debut. Batgirl and Robin have had a lot of solo adventures at this point, mainly as backups and Detective and Batman. And they know each other, obviously. But what's fun about this story and, and later ones is that they really do become more like partners over time. Definitely. And they they know each other. They have worked together with Batman. But this is the first team up of just Robin and Batgirl. Right, right. I also like they don't know each other's secret identity. Spoiler, yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this issue is just so much fun. And it really gets the youthfulness of Batgirl and Robin. And yeah, Batgirl's in Congress. She has some maturity, but she's not as mature or as aged or as skilled as Batman. And that comes across in this issue, delightfully so. Right. And it is during that time when she is clearly portrayed as being older than Robin, unlike nowadays where they're typically portrayed as being the same age. And it's really neat because the story starts off that she is talking to Congress. She's telling them what had happened this past week. And I'm sure they heard about it on the news. 
Yeah. You know, I, I really like that page where she is starting that story, you know, page two of the of the story. And a little tidbit that I found in my research, there are two congressmen in the one, two, third panel on page two who are basically ignoring Babs or playing cards <laughs> during during a, this congressional session. But in reality, they are Julie Schwartz and E. Nelson Bridwell. I found that on the uh, Batman... Uh, wiki at dccomicsfandom.com. And so pretty sure the guy on the left is Julie Schwartz. I thought it was funny. I had a note to say something about the guys not paying attention and playing cards. And then when I found out that they were uh, Julian Nelson, I thought that was hysterical. That is fantastic. So all these years later, I never, ever knew that before. That's phenomenal. So right there, this podcast is worth it just for that. And I, I love the way they bring Benedict Arnold to life. I just think it's great. Like he literally like steps off of the background while Babs is talking about the shame he brought to the country. Yeah, I don't know. I, I always wondered, is was he like a, a mannequin or was he just like a picture that became 3D? It's not clear to me. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So in my mind, it's just a flat picture. Yeah. And he becomes dimensional out yeah. of it. That's yeah. my reading of it. You know, moving on, I love they both change into their identities. They get away from each other. Barb's like, oh, take care of me, Dick. And then she ditches him. And he's like, oh, okay. And then he becomes Rob and she becomes Batgirl and they're both there. So I just think that's funny. And I know nowadays secret identities are almost frowned upon, but I I like it. I think it can add a dimension of fun, some kind of problems for the heroes. You know, it's not just easy for them to go away and come back as, as the hero. Yeah. Let's talk about the art on page five. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, before we get to oh, page five, okay. I actually want to skip back to page four. I love the images of Babs and Dick changing into their heroes, oh, yeah. especially Robin, where theoretically his shirt is casting the bat shadow behind him. Yeah, that's a really cool image by Mike Grell on that one. But we can go on to page five because Robin is looking so fit. There definitely is the new saying like thick thighs save lives <laughs> when the, Robin was the precursor to that because let's be honest, Mike Grell drew beautiful human beings. Yeah. And he liked to draw very few clothes, right? Have you ever read an issue of the Warlord? <laughs> Hardly any characters wore clothes in that series. And I was thinking of the Disco Legion, which oh, yeah. I I love every single one of those styles and outfits and Especially with the Legion, it makes sense. Like you have all these teens hanging out together and it's kind of like a soap opera, like a 90210 or any any of them. So they would be wearing something like that. Yeah. And I, and I, I was going on about Robin, like Shag would go along about someone, but <laughs> it does show power. It shows how dynamic it is. He's coming in through the window. He flips over and hits Benedict Arnold right in the face. The, the way that's drawn, it's clearly delineated action. Oh, yeah. I was going to mention that the, the somersault that he does to to land, that really shows his sort of acrobatic background and everything. I really, um, I really dig that. And it's amazing when you think these are still images, but like in your mind, it's moving. I just that is so great of what an artist can do. And then, of course, that girl comes in, uses her lasso. She gets rid of ben- Well, she doesn't get rid of Benedict Arnold because he gets rid of himself. And there's like this great fire on the wall saying, warning, do not interfere with my plans. Yeah. And that freaks the technician out tremendously. <laughs> I know he's all sweating. Bad girl and Robin like, hmm. I love on the top of the next page how all the kids that are in Babs's office are asking her if she's gone out with Clark Kent. And I just think that's a riot because I know that recently she's appeared in Superman. And I don't know if that was something they wanted to make a thing or what. I definitely think, yeah, it definitely is a callback to her two appearances with Superman and Clark Kent. And yeah, I love Dick and Babs together. That's fantastic. But Babs and Clark Kent, I think they make a great couple. Yeah, the early 70s ones for sure. Yeah. That's not a bad a bad idea. Let's see. I love how as Benedict Arnold and, and your Stan Lee guy are addressing Congress to say you're going to take over the world, Dick jumps into a room to change into Robin and leaves just in time before Babs comes into the same room. <laughs> And again, it's 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 that fluttering of the curtain or yeah. the whatever. Yeah, it's it's funny because it's not moving, but it looks like it's moving. And you think Robin just left that second that Babs comes in the room. The other thing that's great, I mean, this is a great sequence on page nine where Dick sees Barbara in their bat cycle down below, and he just happens to lasso the top of the Washington Monument. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is nowhere near a building like that. But but I love that he lasses the top of it and launches himself to land right on the back of a bike. So that's a great, great scene. So I'm going to be honest. I live close-ish to DC, probably like less than an hour away. And I've been to DC a lot. And yeah, it is funny because when you look at this in real life, you kind of know this is pretty much an impossibility, but I am fully here for it. I am going to buy into it. And in my mind, I do believe he is swinging down and meeting her on her bat cycle. And then on the next picture, these are still images, but you can see Batgirl sliding her cycle over oh, yeah. and Robin leaping off of it. God, I just... It's just beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it just really shows. I think Mike Grell is what he's really good at is besides drawing beautiful people, he's also really good at, at drawing sort of movement and action. And Robin jumping off there is great. And then as they fight the soldiers and dragging them through the city on the wood. I, I'm sorry, that's got to hurt. Yeah, and, and it's it's such a great callback to how the real Benedict Arnold in that time would have dealt with criminals or people that he didn't agree with, that kind of thing. Like those were the kind of things that they did back in that time. I really thought what was really well done from an understated way. So if you think you're, you're, you're Elliot Magan, right? You've got the villain, in this case, Benedict Arnold being egged on by the devil saying, oh, I'm going to not just kill them, but I'm going to make one of them betray the other to save themselves. But both without hesitation, Barbara and Dick both reach up to grab their little control so that they would each release themselves to, quote, be dead. And since they release at the same time, then they, they then are able to save each other. So they're all acting as that partner team in a selfless way. So that's like the heroic moment of the book to me about how they act. Not only is it drawn fabulously on pages 11 to 12, but the message behind that is really good too. I love it. And the great thing is this is something that will be repeated, maybe not per perhaps throughout the entire series, but there are several examples where they act against themselves to save the other. And that's yeah. fantastic. And not a word spoken. That's the cool thing. If you look on that sequence, pages 11 to 12, not a word spoken by Robin and Batgirl. No, right, yeah. no dialogue just, at all. That's their instinct. So and then I the sword love, fight. <laughs> well, I do love, well, before I get there, I do love on page 12, when they release themselves from the logs and they fall down. I love that in a cross company promotion, Batgirl lands like Black Widow. <laughs> She's posing. She lands exactly, you know, whips her head up and she is ready to take on Benedict Arnold. Yeah, maybe Mike Grell ought to sue Disney too for, for, uh, for money. <laughs> I so, agree. so then the sword fight, which is kind of silly, actually, although drawn really beautifully. I don't really understand this. And I'll say because I don't understand devilish ways. <laughs> but yeah. So Stan Lee, devil, the devil Stan Lee snaps his fingers and gives Benedict Arnold swords. Then he gives swords to Becker and Robin. And then they electromagnetically charge. I, I, don't, I don't know, but I'm going to go with this because this is a wonderful story. <laughs> yeah, that, that does make a lot of sense. But wow, the devil, he is evil looking. Um, yeah. But he's I'm, muscly too. I'm not prone to liking the bad boy type, but in a way, <laughs> in a way, I guess perhaps it's innate. But yeah, luckily he doesn't win. Luckily, the youthful spirit of Becker and Robin triumph. Yes. The youthful spirit of America in this bicentennial year. So then we have to talk about the best page in the whole story, the whole book. Sean, you mentioned it already. What a sequence with Robin giving Batgirl a peck on the cheek. And she's like rolling her eyes. You can see her rolling her eyes. She's like, oh, brother, that's the Batman's routine. And then I love her pose in the next panel being like demure. It's like, oh, you know what I'm going to do, Robin? And then she plants one on him. And he's like, uh, 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 uh. <laughs> he swings away because he doesn't want to be seen, I don't think, in his little shorty shorts. But that is a fabulous fabulous scene and just thinking about the message that sends that hey if we're going to be partners we're going to be equal partners on this you're not going to tell me what to do the way batman does so I, I don't know i really i thought this was really funny when i was a kid it's still funny but it's also a uh, great moment in the story when i love it too because she is she's literally turning the tables on him because he leans in he's like why don't you give that up he's gonna you know kiss her on the cheek and she offers her cheek up. He's trying to like tell her not to be that. And then she turns around. And instead of just a quick peck on the cheek, she leans in literally to shut him up because full planted kiss. And she goes, see you around, kid. And she's I think that worked. <laughs> I know. That is I love like it. perfect. 
perfectly I great. And, and I love it. Yep. Then, of course, the last page, Babs is wrapping it up for Congress, letting us know full house. Of the courage. Yeah, yes. Full house. Everyone wants to know what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Now they're paying uh, attention the, to her. She's talking about courage and justice and truth and something, something, something. Even close to the end, there's a beautiful side portrait of Dick Grayson listening mm-hmm. to everyone and some great art effects on each of the people's mm-hmm. faces. Mm-hmm. And then the last point I'd make on this, if you read the caption, is as the first issue of New Batman Family introduced this official team up. The next issue will show you their first unofficial. Issue two, and we'll get to that next month, is the only one that's all reprints. And again, I don't have any evidence of this. Maybe our listeners know. But, you know, issue two being all reprints, I think they were waiting to see how the sales figures went on this and if they were going to continue this theme because it took them several months back then, right? So it wasn't that hard to put out another issue of reprints, but rather than commission new stories until they know it was going to go. Anyway, I found that interesting that they knew that the second issue was coming and they knew it was going to be all reprints. I guess that's my point. Right. And two, it's the holdover from being the first issue special. And we're right. gonna we're gonna create this Batman family book. And also because Batman family was created from scratch, Superman family took over Jimmy Olsen's numbering and they had Jimmy Olsen stories, they had Lois Lane stories, they had Supergirl stories. So they were set for at least the next three months, probably even if they had two or three months backlog of stories, they were ready for almost a whole year. Right. But Batman families from scratch. And back then, these books were all bi-monthly too. So that gave them enough lead time. It's hard to imagine in the days of immediate feedback of things that they took them so long to make decisions. But that's the way it worked back then. Yeah. So overall, great kickoff to the series. I think it's a fantastically wonderful start. A, a plus. I know we're not really grading these. <laughs> I give it whatever. Five. That's a plus. <laughs> whatever. Whatever we're not using to not grade these, I give it the whole number. Okay, now our next segment is called A Trip to Gabriel's Horn. And in this segment, we'll take a trip to Gabriel's Horn, the hip-happening hangout for the new Teen Titans in the 1970s, the most happening discotheque in town. We will talk about the most 70s moment in the Batgirl-Robin story. Paul, do you have anything? Well, it's kind of quaint that on the last page, all the Congress people are actually listening and have something to agree about all together. So that's kind of quaint from the 70s, right? It doesn't happen today. (laughs) That's when I knew it was fiction. My trip to the past is the fact that the CBS network is doing their bicentennial minute. And I remember this from when I was a kid. They had celebrities talk about moments from our history and it was slotted in an ad break, but it probably ran for like a minute, two minutes, depending on like what the history was. And I haven't looked, but I bet they're on YouTube. I'm sure we can look them up and look at them if you want to. One of the reasons we wanted to do the podcast was to sort of take us back in time and look at these things. And that's why we wanted to do these trips to Gabriel's Horn to help us place them in the context that these stories were written and drawn in and read. Ready to move on to the second story? Let's hear about that second story in the issue. All right. So the next story is a quick four-pager entitled The Great Handcuff King starring Alfred. It was originally presented in Batman number 45 from 1945 and written by Joe Samixon and art by Jerry Robinson. Alfred is reading the ads in the newspaper and decides he's going to purchase some handcuffs to assist him in his desire to be a detective. He goes over and visits his butler friend, Ronnie, to show off his new purchases. But great Scott, a stranger opens the door. A counterfeit butler has taken the place of Alfred's friend and is waiting for his gang to show up to loot the house. To keep him quiet, he decides to humor Alfred by letting him test the handcuffs by locking him to a random pole in the middle of the house. Not sure what they use that for, but Alfred has forgotten the key. Meanwhile, the rest of the gang shows up and Alfred lets them in, thinking that they are plumbers. By accident almost, Alfred stops the plumbers from looting a safe, first by tackling one and then by accidentally capturing them with the handcuffs during the melee. The police eventually come, arrest the thieves and congratulate Alfred on being so clever. When he gets home, Bruce and Dick are pretty impressed, but Alfred decides to throw out the handcuffs since he's afraid of getting caught himself. So Sean, what did you think of this little story? I think it's delightful. I love that it's kind of like a mishap but then Alfred takes control of the situation and then deals with them. I think it's neat. This is the kind of story that when you're 10 years old, you may read and promptly forget about. But reading it now, I just think it's terrifically charming. And, you know, I think it's got great pacing for a four-page story. Mm-hmm. We forget the Alfred that's portrayed today about being a badass, XMI6, an actor and medic, and he's, he's everything to Batman. We forget that he was originally put in Batman stories to be a bit of comic relief, and he was a bit of a bungler. And so there's a cute sequence where the art is cute 
cute where they're all getting tangled up in each other and they're all like going around and they happens to snap the handcuffs. And then the last panel, the best art is Bruce's with this look of surprise on his face in that last panel. I just love that. So anyway, it's a great little story. I really do enjoy it. Another thing I really like about this is it's not Alfred going out and trying to stop right. criminals. You know, he's not on patrol. He's right. going over to his friend's house. Oh my God, my friend's not here. <laughs> I love when they said, as Alfred expresses regrets, unbutler-like thoughts flip through <laughs> the substitute butler's mind. <laughs> That's awesome. So if you don't mind, I'd like to take a minute. One of the special things we want to do is when something interesting comes up, I want to highlight it. And we've all, of course, heard of Jerry Robinson, the classic Batman artist. But one person we may not have heard as much about is Joe Samixon. So I looked him up and researched him a bit, and I found it pretty interesting. So he was born back in 1906 in Trenton, New Jersey, not that far from me. He went to Rutgers and then got a PhD in chemistry from Yale by the age 23. So that's pretty impressive. He wrote scientific papers, he wrote pulp magazines, and he eventually made his way to DC Comics around 1942. And there he wrote some Batman stories, some Green Arrow, Airwave, and Robot Man. And Rob would like to hear that he's credited as being the co-creator of Tomahawk. And in 1955, he is usually credited as a co-creator of John Jones, the Martian Manhunter. There is a little dispute over that. If you read the Grand Comic Database, they talk about how the first script for Detective 225 for The Martian Manhunter is attributed to Jack Miller, but it's disputed. And DC actually credits Samixon with that story. And you can find that in the uh, Showcase Presents about Martian Manhunter. And that's where they credit Samixon with uh, being the writer on that first episode of The Martian Manhunter. So you don't hear a lot about these guys these days. So I like to research them when we're looking at these things. That's fantastic. I had no idea. I want to move into our second break segment, and we're calling it Bat branding. And we're going to look at throughout the issue, the fabulous house ads and text and letters pages and so forth, because we really get a kick out of that when we're reading these old comics. We want to take a few minutes to talk about them. So Sean, why don't you kick us off with the first feature that you want to note? The first one we'll talk about is on the inside cover, and it is a beloved Hostess Twinkies ad starring Shazam, one of my absolute favorites, fighting the Minerva Menace. And it's great because she hypnotizes kids into <laughs> saying they don't like hostess Twinkies, <gasps> which I know that's last for me. And I'll be honest with these hostess ads, those hostess fruit pies, they were horrible in real life. <laughs> I hated eating them. So that I could be tricked into saying I hate hostess fruit pies, but they would never get me to say I don't like hostess Twinkies. <laughs> but luckily Shazam comes up. The other thing I love is this reminds me of the Saturday Night Live skit where on Broadway, there was a mentalist and everyone who went to see his show went after the show, they would interview him and they would say, we loved it. It was better than Cats. We're going to see it again and again. And that reminds me of the sad. The first one I want to talk about is a two-page ad on pages 22 and 23. It's a two-page ad for treasuries. On the right-hand side, there are two sizzling summer specials coming up. And I love the cover of The Secret Origins of Supervillains, where you have mm -hmm. the heroes on one side and the villains on the other side running towards each other, whether it's on these covers or any other Marvel or DC comics or the Super Friends. Any, any of those places is always a fun cover. And the other one that's getting the spotlight is a Superman edition, where a little boy uh, flying on Superman's back and right past the Statue of Liberty, another beautiful cover. On the facing page, there are some previous editions that you could order directly. In the letters pages of the time, DC would always talk about how we don't have old editions, but somehow they had treasury in first edition specials. My favorite part of this one is warning the Wiz Comics and the Sensation Comics first edition specials are running low, so order them now or you may be too late. Yeah, so. that secret origins of supervillains. It's true. Any cover that has opposing forces running against each other, I will never, ever get tired of images like yeah, that. Yeah, you can't get tired of that. And literally, like, every treasury on these two pages is so good. They're just fantastic. No, you're absolutely right. I think I had every one except the Bible and ghosts. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. Growing up, I didn't have any of them. But now I have all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is following the first Batgirl and Robin story, there is a text page. Ah, remember text pages, how wonderful they were <laughs> way back before we had access to Wikipedia and every comic ever created. I loved text pages. And this is great because it tells the story of Robin and Batgirl's origins. Now, I will say, obviously, Robin had been published much longer. So there is a lot more information about Robin's origin than there is about Batgirls. But it's great because they go into depth with Robin with Boss Zuko and the Haley Circus. One of the things I love that they talk 
talk about is with the consent of the youngsters surviving relatives, Wayne was able to adopt Robin. I always found that interesting. I would think from a story point, it would be much easier to just have Dick's parents be only children. And then, you know, their parents had died. So that's an interesting story point that maybe they came up with a story later. Yeah, I always wondered about that, too, because you never really read about that. I and mean, every once in a while, nowadays, we'll get stories of Dick's relatives and stuff. But back then, it was like, he he was an orphan. He, he would have gone into the system if Bruce hadn't taken him in. And it would have been a lot easier back then, I suppose, to do it. Probably Enos and Bridwell wrote this synopsis. So maybe that's his own headcanon. Well, and true, it definitely would have been easier for Wayne to adopt Grayson because there's precedent for it. Because Daddy Warbucks adopted Annie. Oh, there you go. <laughs> The the thing I do love about this is it does give weight to the argument, the difference between Dick Grayson and Bruce Wayne, because Dick was able to find the killer of his parents. So that puts him in a different place mentally than it did Bruce. And I think that's a good story aspect. Now, the next thing we're going to talk about are the comedy cover capers. And this, again, is a page filler. (laughs) (laughs) To say the least. But I mean that with the utmost respect. Like, you would never have anything like this now. But I love it because they take old comic book covers and put in funny dialogue. So you have an issue of Detective Comics, which looks like it's 385, because my eyes are bad. And it's Batgirl and Robin, and they're all aghast. And here, Batman has a sign on his cape saying, kick me. And it's like, (laughs) what are you two laughing about? Imagine doing that to some Neil Adams art, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Then the next issue is Detective Comics, and the hooded hangman is lifting up Batman. And you think he's lifting him up because he vanquished him? No, he's up for auction. I have a bid of $50 for the Batman. Do I hear 100 And this was really the first Bachelor auction that ever happened. <laughs> then you have Detective Comics would have been in the second appearance of Man Bat. And it's Man or Bat. And it's Batman lifting up a lantern in a marsh and Man Bat coming at him. And he said, I told you not to leave the water running. And the last one, of course, is an issue of Batman, where originally the Swami is saying one of the men here are disguised as Batman. But in this issue, in this updated version, it says some crystal ball you stole from Bruce Wayne. All I'm getting are old Batman reruns. (laughs) Yeah, this is something, again, I would have read and kind of snickered at. But the first thing that OCD me would have done is turn to page 45 and check the actual dialogue since I I wanted to know what did they really say? So I would be flipping back and forth when I was a kid on that for sure. The next one real quick I want to mention is on page 42 and it's it's an ad for Man Bat. And what's interesting the top talks about fantasy's most bizarre hero in his own macabre magazine. Part of the reason we get the Man Bat story later in this issue is his comic was coming out and it's written by Jerry Conway and with Steve Ditko art. What's neat about this is it's not long probably after Conway joined DC because at the bottom it's got watch for three more from Conway's corners. They were really promoting Jerry Conway as coming over from Marvel to DC. All-Star Comics, which I picked up from the beginning. Blackhawk, which I was kind of, eh, I think I had a few issues of that. And then Codename Assassin, which I know I didn't see when I was a kid. And that actually didn't appear in its own comic. Ended also up in first issue special. Of course, since have it, I just thought that was neat. And the last thing I'll say about this, I remember when I was a kid, I didn't have it right away, but at some point I got the two man bad issues because only two issues in that series. And I was still young enough of being disappointed that it was Steve Ditko art in the inside and not Neil Adams. <laughs> I would like to read those two issues. I don't know that I want to get those two issues. It's funny, Steve Ditko, I have such an odd yeah. admiration and disappointment of. Like, I love his original Spider-Man. Like, I just yep. think it's so graceful and beautiful. And then later, his art just doesn't do it for me. I, I don't know what the disconnect is. with. Yeah, I think, again, we appreciate these things a lot more as we get older and we can see some of the technique. Think about it. We're, at least I am, 50-something year old man read hundreds of thousands of comic books in my day, you sort of understand what is less flashy and more storytelling. It go know how to tell a story. And right. I think that's what we can appreciate today. Flipping on, on page 60, there's a neat one, which is coming soon in our all new supersize, a four-part series about the legend of King Arthur. It's advertised as being a classic in the making. It's only Joe Orlando as the editor, Jerry Conway again as the writer, and Nestor Redondo, the artist. It's got a beautiful illustration of Arthur and a knight on horseback, probably Lance 
Lancelot and Guinevere at the bottom and the round table. And as far as I can tell, maybe our listeners know better, I don't think this ever came out. I think that I, at the time, didn't know who Nestor Redondo was. He did Swamp Thing after Bernie Wrightson left. And a beautiful series that I would highly recommend, Rima the Jungle Girl, has some of the most beautiful art in it that I've ever, yeah. ever seen. Maybe our listeners know if this series ever appeared anywhere, but I, I, I never saw it and could not find any of it. So a question I had about the ad is it says coming soon in our all new super size. Now, are they talking about the treasury? Was this a giant? Like, what is their new super size? Was this something know. just for King Arthur? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it was. It's a shame because it looks like these were you know, some sort of promotional images that he drew. And yeah. maybe they just could have got caught up in the DC implosion, which happens yeah. less than a year from now. Anyway, you want to finish this out on the special features? Absolutely. I love this. It's a page about the Alfred story. And it's all made up of previous artwork. And it tells the story of Alfred, how Alfred came to join us. He was Bruce's dad's butler. He comes to the Wayne mansion. Then he loses weight, grows a mustache, which allows him to impersonate Batman. Okay. <laughs> then it's about the time Alfred died. And then it's about the time Alfred came back to life. And it's, it's all great. So you get four panels that tell his history. I do think there should be some kind of like box at the bottom that kind of goes a little bit past that point in time. Because it's really just finally he came back to himself with no memory of his evil past. That's it. So I would yeah. like a little bit more of a finish to it, but it's great. I agree. It felt abrupt. It's a funny page filler, I think, but I don't know why they chose those panels. It feels like somebody did that after their lunch break because they think, oh no, we have one page left to go. <laughs> Not very well could be. All right. Why don't we move on to the third story, Sean? Our third story is Commissioner Gordon's Death Threat, starring Batman, Robin, Commissioner Gordon. It comes in at 10 pages, written by Gardner Fox. The penciler is Sheldon Mordoff. And the inker is Joe Gila. And this originally appeared in Batman number 188 from 1966. As our story starts, Batman is hanging out at GCPD headquarters when he gets a call from Commissioner Gordon, who is vacationing in Resort City, second only to Monaco as the vacation destination of 1966. Gordon's voice says, picture it, Gotham City, 1926. I called a crook named Fred Purley robbing the Foxcroft Jewel Salon. The judge threw the book at him, and he vowed vengeance right to my face. But I forgot all about it. Now, I'm going to interrupt my synopsis. You might be wondering how Gordon could forget that someone threatened death upon him. But in the intervening years, he's had to deal with criminal masterminds like the Riddler, the Penguin, Bookworm, and the Condiment King. So some plain Jane like Fred Purley just recedes into the corners of your mind. But back to Gordon. Batman hears the melodious tones of Gordon's voice saying how Purley is being paroled for good behavior, and the memories come flooding back to him, just in time to ruin Jim's R&R. Well, Batman is having none of it and tells Gordon to stay in his hotel room. He's coming to protect his best friend. Well, second to Robin. Well, third to Alfred. Well. Fourth to super, well, Gordon is on the list somewhere. But as the phone is hung up, we see that it wasn't Jimbo who was gab, gab, gabbing to Bruce. It was Fred Purley, who, as the father of Rich Little in the new 52 reboot from a couple years back, has learned to perfectly mimic Gordon's melodious tones. Batman flies down to Resort City, opens up Jim's hotel room, and kabam! Literally, that's what the sound effect says, blows up to his death. Now, that seems like an odd finish to our hero, but it must be true because we saw it happen. Meanwhile, Robin spots some hoodlums stealing from the Foxcroft Jewel Salon and puns his way into stopping them with the Batmobile and the Bat Hydrant, but gets all discombobulated by hearing the melodious tones of Commissioner Gordon and whap! Literally, that's what the sound effect says, Gets knocked down, but not back up again. Sorry, Chumbawamba. Robin goes to the station to report the crime and miracles upon miracles. Oh my God, I can't believe my eyes. How can this be true? I thought he was dead. Batman is there. He didn't die. The two of them compare notes. And since this is taking a really long time, we'll skip ahead to the part of the story where they find the needle in the haste. I mean, they find the house where Jimmy is being held. Now, they know they have the right house because of the bat signal that Gordon very 
painstakingly and with great forethought, planning and intelligence set up for them. Robin and Batman bust in just as Pearlie is detailing his history of listening to and practicing imitating Gordon's melodious tone. And then they proceed to punch out the hench goons. And then they learn that Jim didn't plan to set up a bat signal for them at all, but that Pearlie set a kerosene lamp in front of Gordon's doodling of the bat signal. And all I can say about that is it's a good thing that it wasn't me who was kidnapped because the only signal that would have been seen from my eighth grade doodling is Sean M. Myers plus Kurt Russell forever. <laughs> what did you think of the story, Paul? <laughs> it's clearly a Silver Age Batman <laughs> 66 style story. No question about it. I did like there's a lot of Robin solo action in this. Maybe that's why they picked this story. I did like that. Oddly, if you look on DC Universe, for some reason, this story on DC Universe is printed in black and white. Not the rest of the issue, just this story. I don't know why. Maybe they never recolored it because the only place it was reprinted was in a showcase or something. But yeah, I mean, it's a fun story. It's it's a bit silly. Commissioner Gordon doesn't come off looking too good. Now, again, nowadays, Gordon would figure out his own way out of the trap. That wasn't the case in, in the uh, 60s, I don't think. But overall, really a, a fun a fun story. How about you? Like you said, Silver Age greatness. You have to buy into it. You have to be in the mindset that this is going to be a fun story. You know, this is not building on the mythos of Batman or right. <laughs> anything like that. It's just neat and fun. It is funny, though, because Curly had been in jail for 40 years. <laughs> and apparently jail is wonderful for your skin and your complexion because Pearly looks like he's possibly in his 30s. He doesn't look the a fact, day older than when Gordon put him away. Yeah, the fact that he had 40 hard years in jail and looks like this, I think is fantastic. Old Jim hasn't um, aged quite as well. That's right. The other thing I absolutely love, if however you can get this issue, we're going to skip way ahead because on page nine, the one to fourth panel, it really looks like a piece of pop art because you have Robin punching out a criminal and really the main image is the criminal's face. And then you get Robin's head and just his fist and the sound effect. It's fantastic. Like it does look like Andy Warhol pop art. Like, like literally like because Robin's popping him in the face. It's so beautifully done. That is one thing. Sometimes it is tough to read Silver Age stories just because of how yeah. silly and elaborate and ridiculous they are. But there's such a sense of action and adventure in this. Stuff gets blown up. Well, Robin's got a big hit. smile on his face while he's zocking this guy, right? <laughs> and I, all the way through, I know people make fun of the Teen Titans and the Robins, teen talk and the slang, but I love it because they're looking for Commissioner Gordon. We're going to jump all over the place. They're looking for Commissioner Gordon and Robin says, what a blunt hunt this is going to be. <laughs> And when, when Batman flies off to Resort City, Robin says, Batman had to slice air to get there. <laughs> Robin does get the last word in his stories. Like, man, these rat things never learn. <laughs> it's just so bizarre how they spend a panel where Pearlie has been tailing Commissioner Gordon to listen to him. I understand this is a rage. Wouldn't it have just been easier to have like a mechanical box that made you sound like Commissioner Gordon? Because that's high tech and tech is popular in, in these stories. But overall, fun story. Not my favorite era either. I can only read one or two of them in a row <laughs> before I need to read something else. That's what I was saying. Yeah, like I'm glad this is a reprint. I'm glad I got to experience this story. But yeah, I, I'm glad it's just part of the book and not the main book. Let's move on. Let's talk about something that we call the Bat Timeline. And in this segment, we're going to take a look at some of the other titles that DC, as well as other publishers, published this month. And as always, getting this information from the fabulous newsstand feature at Mike's Amazing World of Comics. And if you don't know that website, you ought to, you know, you can get mm -hmm. lost just playing around mm -hmm. in there for a while. And when doing something like this to see contemporaneous issues, using that newsstand feature is really fun. It brings back a lot of memories. Sean, what do you have as your first choice? We're going to do the Batman Timeline first. So those are books really related to Batman. So the first one we have is Batman number 267, Invitation to a Murder. And the Brave and Bold number 121 was out this month starring Batman and the Metal Men with fabulous Jim Aparo art. 
story by Bob Haney. It's also bicentennial themed as the train is carrying the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence around the country to be viewed, gets hijacked by Native Americans who capture Batman and then strap him to the front. So the cover of this one is fantastic as the train is crashing with Batman on the front and the metal men bailing out. That's a favorite. I'm surprised they're using that for the basis for the third National Treasure movie. (laughs) There you go. Must be it. The next book we're going to talk about is Detective Comics number 451. And there are two stories, uh, Batman and the Batman's Burden. And Robin in The Parking Lot Bandit strikes again. They sound like two completely different stories. Detective Comics has a fantastic cover where the Batman is hovering over a crowd about to pounce. And the cover text says, beware the night of the Batman. And just as a note, the Robin story in that one is a riot. Dick takes a, an undercover job as a parking lot attendant because of this parking <laughs> lot bandit, and it's just a riot. Another issue that Batman appeared in was, of course, Justice League of America, number 122. And Rob would be very sorry to hear that on the cover, they proclaim that Aquaman <laughs> is dead. But in reality, this is a casebook story about sort of a JLA year one kind of story. And we get to know how and why all the Justice Leaguers decided to tell each other their secret identities. And it had to do with something like Dr. Light and erasing memories and no, no, not that story. It's a totally different story altogether, but <laughs> that, I'm telling the truth. Another one we have is the Joker number three. Joker is part of the Batman family. All the villains are. So Joker number three is a famous issue because it guest stars the Creeper. And this has been reprinted 4,000 times in lots of different... <laughs> the first time I read it was in a reprint, but it is a great story. Two great characters. The last Batman title on sale this month was World's Finest, number 232. Batman and Superman are in bed together, both dreaming about a genie about to impale them. Uh, I remember thinking that this was a strange looking cover, but it got, you know, it's actually pretty good. It's one of these Ernie Chua slash Chan covers. I think he was very underrated as a cover I do artist. Too. I, I like a lot of his work. And we'll see quite a few of them at Batman Family. So what about other issues, Sean? If you had your allowance of $5 or something like that in this month, what would you have spent those pennies on besides these Batman Family titles? Okay, so I'm going to cheat a little bit, and I'm going to get The Amazing World of DC Comics number six via a mail order. I'm going to buy some crappy comic book I don't care about so I can cut out the coupon to get it. But it's the special Joe Orlando issue. The next one I'm going to get is Archie Comics Digest number 13, because I love Digests, and DC hasn't done them yet. The next book I'm going to get is Harvey Collector's Comics number one, which reprints two Richie Rich stories. Oh, I love reprints, obviously. The next one is Josie and the Pussycats number 83. And I was a huge fan of the Josie and the Pussycats cartoon show. So I'm going to pick up that issue. Now I'm going to be honest, at the time, I would not have picked up this next title. But now I'll do anything to get it in real life. And that's Marvel Treasury Edition featuring Doctor Strange, number six. Yeah, that's a cool cover, too. There is beautiful cover artwork on that. Oh, my gosh. I I want it so bad. The next issue I do have in my collection right now, and that is Shazam, number 20. I'm a huge Shazam fan. Mm -hmm. And the last book I'm going to get, which brings me in at (laughs) $4.80, is... Spidey Super Stories number 12. At the time, I was far too mature to appreciate Spidey Super Stories, but thankfully I have regressed and will now love getting it. <laughs> I have quite a few of them. I did, that wasn't an every month buy from me. I also had quite a few uh, for the same reason that they were pretty fun. So the first one I'll go with, Sean, is Amazing Spider-Man number 148. That's got a fabulous cover of the Jackal throwing Spider-Man in chains off the bridge just like Gwen died not that long ago and it's actually first chapter in the original clone saga story where we find out where there's been this mysterious gwen-like person uh, showing up spider-man was a was always a, a buy for me the next one for me would have been the floating head avengers number 139 was all a sucker <laughs> for those floating head covers we don't talk a lot about atlas seaboard wouldn't have bought it when i was a kid probably never saw it but demon hunter number one i mean if you look at that that's got a terrific cover and that's something that today i would find more interesting Moving in on down to the F's, the Flash, Flash number 236, a giant green hand 
coming out the threatened iris with the flash running in. And I think I had just started picking up the flash. And I believe this is the second issue of the flash I ever bought. Cause the one right before this has Jay Garrick in it too. And is a semi-famous cover of their two bodies being sort of torn apart. And, mm-hmm. and this was the issue right after that. At the time I would not have bought house of secrets, but now look at that Bernie Wrightson cover. How could you not want it? Almost ashamed to say I did have justice Inc. Number three, <laughs> I bought a few of those comics and I never really figured what out what was happening in those comics <laughs> and ended up not continuing on. There are a couple of reprints from Marvel Triple Action and Marvel's Greatest Comics. They reprinted the Avengers and the Fantastic Four. That was the way that kids, that was the way we got older stories back in the day. We didn't have DC Universe. We didn't have omnibuses or, or uh, other types of trades, but that's how I read the early adventures of, you know, both the, in this case, the Avengers and the Fantastic Four. And then I had one more, the last one that and I would have got just because it's a fabulous cover by Dick Giordano, Superman number 291, where yeah. Superman just got clobbered by somebody and was, you know, usually you see Superman plowing through a wall. Well, in this case, somebody punched Superman. He went through a wall backwards and all the <laughs> Superman and the debris is falling towards us. Anyway, so those are some of the things. Hopefully that's interesting. People bring back some memories. We really wanted to sort of talk about that kind of thing during the course of this reunion podcast. I'm glad you're done with your list because you have another story to tell us. About. I got one last story. It is Challenge of the Man Bat. It is reprinted from Detective Comics number 400 from 1970, only five years ago. And it stars Batman and Man Bat and is indeed Man Bat's first appearance. It is coming in at 16 pages, written by Frank Robbins, art by the fabulous team of Neil Adams and Dick Giordano, and did get a letter of credit on this one by John Costanza. We open our story at night at the Gotham Museum of Natural History where we introduced somebody named Blankstrom, who's working after hours on an exhibit about bats. When the curator leaves, though, Blankstrom works on a secret project using the remains of a dissected bat. He thinks, soon I will have a natural ability that even the great Batman doesn't possess. But speaking of the great Batman, he is currently tangling with a gang of crooks who work silently in complete darkness. They are robbing a bank vault using special goggles, which enable them to see in the dark, and special shoes and clothing that allow them to move about silently. Despite their gimmick, Batman's able to stop them from succeeding in this, their first robbery. The Blackout gang does manage to escape, but they forget and leave behind their ultrasonic silent drill. The gang regroups and decides to hit the gem collection at the Museum of Natural History the following night. Meanwhile, back at the museum, Langstrom has finished his serum, and it's to give himself sonar abilities. After downing it, his experiment seems to be working, as he he is able to navigate through the lab in the dark. But it has made his hearing overly sensitive, so he tries to dull it with some earplugs. During the next day, Batman conducts his own experiments to try to gain a technological edge on the Blackout Gang with what he calls stereo locator earplugs. They seem to work as Batman's able to find Alfred playing hide-and-seek in the dark. He also studies the operating frequency of the sonic drill in hopes it will lead him to the gang. We cut back to Langstrom and see that his gland extract has had some unfortunate, unforeseen side effects. He has developed claw-like hands, giant ears, and his face changes to resemble a bat. In fact, now he is a man bat. He decides to hide in the bat exhibit in the museum until he can find a way to reverse his condition. The next night, the Blackout Gang strikes the museum, but Batman is able to track them using the frequency of the drill. Unfortunately, they're prepared for Batman's interference because they use the high-tech method of throwing ping pong balls at Batman to overstimulate his new sonic earplugs. But seemingly out of nowhere, Langstrom comes to Batman's aid and working together, they defeat the crooks. When Batman turns to thank Langstrom, he shines a light on his new partner. He sees the man's deformed face. He says, wow, you've got a better bat mask even than I have. Langstrom is ashamed and knocks the light out of Batman's hand, saying he only wishes it were a mask, and then flees the scene in shame. The story ends as Batman reflects that the stranger would make a formidable friend or foe. Bum, bum, bum. Sean, what'd you think? Oh, Paul, I love this story so much. Oh, I love it. Yeah, this, this is, is this is exactly why I love the fact that they had reprints in the yeah. issue. And especially yeah. at the time, I love that they seem to be okay with reprinting a little bit more recent stories. Right. And like we talked about before, it could have been because Man Bat's series was coming up, but this was where I read the story for the first time. I didn't have Detective 400 at that time. Yeah, exactly the same. Once I got this issue, this is the first time I read it. I find it interesting that we don't get Langstrom's first name. Obviously, later it's Kirk, we find out, uh, but we don't get his first name in this story. 
I think the theme of the story is interesting, all about sonar and bats and hearing and in the dark and all that with the Blackout Gang. This is a time period when Batman was not invincible, right? He got knocked out by crooks all the time. To the younger kids, Batman always is seven steps ahead of everybody else. But back then, he was a re- you know a very talented regular guy. But he could he could be surprised. He could be snuck up on, and that happens in this story too. What do you think of the Blackout Gang? They're sort of story fodder. I don't know if they're worthy of future appearances. I think it's neat because of and this is going to sound off because their cost their costume is just all black. And it does really look neat. Now, obviously, it's kind of like a challenge to present that artistically. Yeah. But you have Neil Adams doing it. So so it does come off really, really well. Now, a little bit later, we'll have the Sunset Gang. And they had like a better <laughs> a better spin on the outfits, which we'll talk about that when we get to it. But yeah, I, I love their outfits. I, I think it's great. Neil Adams is great at just sort of drawing the figure and then sort of the absence of light. Most of the time, especially nowadays, Kirk Langstrom is portrayed as being relatively sympathetic. Stupid, he did this to himself, but sympathetic with his wife and his child and all that as it, and, and as he develops. But Neil Adams in pages one and two draw him kind of sinister, like, ha ha, uh, soon I will have this natural ability. Even the great Batman doesn't possess. And he's got that sort of evil scientist look about him, which I think is really neat. It's funny, at this time period, I would not question neil adams art well now i kind of would but at this time period normally i would not question it but the second panel of the story this has always confused me or bothered me the way he's holding pliers like it's almost like right up against his throat that always confused i'm like is he killing himself like he's obviously not if the pliers were just a little bit further down i guess like where his tie would be and its collar i think it would kind of make a little bit more sense to me yeah that's a good catch i think it it's that foreshortening effect where it looks like adams had a little trouble conveying what i think he's just holding the pliers in front of him but it doesn't come off quite that way so that's a that's a good catch i have to say the the best panel of the book though or the story is page eight where we first get a glimpse of Man Bat and his horror. We kind of see his hands in the previous page and he's taking his hat off and his coat and he looks in the mirror and he's like, ah, I've become a Man Bat. Wow, that's a terrific panel there. And what you were talking about, when you see his hands, it really looks like it inspired an American werewolf in London when he's going (laughs) through the change and you see his hands start to elongate and get furry and hairy. Like it totally looks like that. I love, love, love the layout. On page nine, you've got Mm -hmm. sort of the panels laid out in the sort of a shape of a bat, but it's not the Batman bat that we're used to seeing. It's got a little man bat head at the top and then the curved panels where he's bouncing around. He needs to find an antidote. He can't figure out what to do. And it conveys sort of a claustrophobic effect and like, oh no, what what am I going to do? And on the next page, you see him hanging upside down in the middle of all the bats. (laughs) That (laughs) is is such a great touch. Oh my God. I love that. That is so well done that they did that. Yeah. We get the groovy Batmobile on page 11, the sort of coupe with the big bat head just painted out in shadow. That was a fun Batmobile in the 70s. And then the, the fact that these guys brought ping pong balls to throw off Batman, they're going boink, 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 boink. <laughs> it's <laughs> funny. Pretty- in the first for story in the issue, I was talking about you get the sense of movement from mm-hmm. Mike Brell. This panel, I can see and hear these ping pong balls and you, and I don't know if it's the motion lines or just the repeated bong, 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 or just the fact that they're white granted yeah, like that's good this yeah. would this would have been pitch black but for us I guess because it's all these white circles and not really related to this it reminds me there's an exhibition of how I think atoms work where it's like a little table and there are mouse traps all set and you throw one ping pong ball in and then that hits the mousetrap and the mousetrap jumps up, hits the other mousetrap like that sense of movement. It's the same kind of thing with these ping pong balls. I can see and hear them moving. Yeah. Then we get some fight scenes, and on the second to last page, fifteen, great shot from behind of Batman clobbering the villain, and he's glad to have you on the team, fella. Says Batman, and it's creak. It's what I've always dreamed of, Batman. So here you've got Kirk Langstrom being portrayed a little more sympathetically, and then at the bottom of that page, when Batman shines the light, that's another great image, a little less detailed. Then he gets mad at Batman when he says, "Disguise, disguise." 
And then the end, in the original issue, it has watch for upcoming appearances of Man Bat because Neil Adams didn't get a story in every issue of Detective. It would alternate mm-hmm. with Bob Brown and other, other artists. Here, though, it talks about the Man Bat has become Batman's friend. And now this strange winged creature of the night gets his own magazine. Watch for the first issue of Man Bat on sale in September. So that's pretty neat, to, the way to close the book. It's an advertisement almost. It's funny. Because of Batman family, I always think of Man Bat more as a hero mm-hmm. because when I started to get Batman family month after month after month, that's mm-hmm. when Man Bat had his feature. He was a right. detective. And I always loved that. Now when he's portrayed as a villain, I'm, I am a little bit disappointed. Yeah. But saying that, I don't understand why they've never used Man Bat as a villain in the Batman movies only because like that visual effect of a man bat, mm-hmm. uh, I almost think maybe it would be too scary. This it, huge creature with a wingspan. When I think of that, I mean, they're going for like a Hulk vibe where it's a tragic accident and really uh, doesn't mean to be evil. It's not a mustache yeah. twirling villain, but I always think of the very first episode I saw of the animated series yeah. where Batman's in that. And he, you can imagine a movie scene of Batman hanging on with his bat rope and man bat flying him around through the city and crashing him into walls and stuff like that. Yeah, I agree with you. He would make a great movie. He's right up there with why they never made a movie version of Brainiac to me. Those are some great villains that we never got it. The only way I want him to be a villain in a Batman movie is if in the sequel that he is good and helps him out. Again, he could be not so much a villain, but or maybe he portrayed as a villain, but by the end helps Batman take down the the real villain of the movie or something like that. So, Sean, that'll about do it for our first episode. You still want to do these with me? Absolutely. All 34 (laughs) more of them. So why don't you tell our listeners where they can find us? We are on Twitter under at BatFamReunion, B-A-T-F-A-M-R-E-U-N-I-O-N, or search Batman Family Reunion on Twitter and you'll see us. You can also email us at BatmanFamilyReunion at gmail.com and the general fire and water social media. And please leave us comments either by emailing that email address or on the fireandwaterpodcast.com website, because next episode, we will have listener feedback. We'll read all the feedback left on the fireandwaterpodcast.com website and any emails we get. And we'd love to hear what you thought about our first foray into hosting a show, as well as any comments you have on the features or answers to questions we raised. And again, this is the Batman family reunion. So we're inviting you to come to the reunion. We want to hear from you. If you have stories of Batman family, if you want to talk about a certain issue, a certain story, a certain character, please let us know because we want to invite all of our aunts, uncles, cousins, third nephew, twice removed, that long ago person that we don't talk about all the time. You are invited to the reunion. Come on and join us. Before we close, I want to say a few words about the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Over the past six or seven years, I have gotten countless hours of enjoyment listening to shows. And now Sean and I are fortunate enough to even host our own show. And as most of you probably know, running the network has gotten more and more costly over the years as more and more shows were added. So if you are enjoying what you hear on this show or any of the other shows, please consider becoming a patron. We can't all be Bruce Wayne, but any small amount you can give helps defray the cost. To find out how, please go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. And thanks. So, Sean, I am going to head back over to the picnic table and get some more apple pie. Make sure we tell Alfred we're running low. Take care, everybody. We will see you next month on the Batman Family Reunion.